0: Welcome to Women and Sustainability, the podcast where we speak with some of the world's foremost female professionals from across the sustainability field, with me, your host, Emily Fripp. This month, I have the pleasure of speaking to Penny Davis, who, over the course of her career has worked across the world in the fields of forestry, climate change and sustainable development. When I first met Penny, she was the Senior Forestry Advisor, leading advice on UK government's global policy and international programming on forests. She's led the UK government and the European Union delegations in international forest policymaking arenas, including at the United Nations and the World Bank, and has played a key role in developing the European Union's Forest Law Enforcement Governance and Trade, the FLEGT Action Plan, and she coined the term. More recently, Penny was International Director for Natural Resources and Climate Change at the Ford Foundation, where she worked to provide support to rural communities and indigenous peoples in the Global South. You'll see that working with and advocating for local communities in the field of forestry and climate change mitigation is a key passion of Penny's, and I can't wait for you to meet her. Penny, thank you so very much for joining us today. Um, in preparation for this interview, um, we do like to bring together a little bit of a bi- biography of our of our guests. And... Uh, yeah, I mean, you're a bit of a challenge for two reasons. Firstly, there seem to be a lot of Penny Davises out there, or at least several that weren't quite the right ones. So, uh, but thank you for bearing with us on that one. We nearly had a completely different interview. Um, but, but equally, because I, we tried to summarise your your resume, your career in and life, and, and it's it's vast and fascinating, and I wouldn't do it justice in trying to get a couple of sentences together. So, I'm really looking forward to chatting to you today to get an insight into how all of this began. How did you go from being, you know, sort of working and and living and being with an indigenous community in Sierra Leone to leading international government policy dialogue um, processes and engagement, which is sort of two ends of, of of a sort of scale of dialogue. But I'm sure there were probably lessons you learnt in that very first job that, you know, you take forward into these high-level discussions, and you kind of think, thank goodness those women taught taught me that that little trick back then several years ago. So I mean, it's a huge pleasure. Thank you very much for taking the time out and joining us today. And so to sort of get us going, I guess. I mean, when I when I was looking at this and sort of thinking about you and know, how to start the the. What, it, what on earth enticed you to get into this space and and take up that first job of being in the middle of sort of Sierra Leone I mean that's that's some place to go I mean we're talking a few years ago when perhaps sort of websites and internet and phones weren't quite the same as they are today I mean how did that all happen and and what drove you I guess to sort of that first job and that making that first step into this world
1: yeah. Oh, well, it's a pleasure to be talking to you, Emily. This is uh, uh, an interesting topic. I mean, I suppose my my career started really with my childhood, you know, before I became an adult. Um, My mother uh, was a very strong influence in my life. And uh, she gave birth to me when she was 39, which was considered old in those days. Uh, And she went to work in northern Nigeria in 1952, before, before independence, and she lived there for 27 years. So, you know, some of my childhood was in northern Nigeria. She worked in Adamawa province, uh, where Boko Haram is now active. Oh, wow, okay. Uh, and she yeah. was one of, uh, ironically, a handful of women education officers, and her job was to persuade Muslim chiefs and others to send their daughters to school, and of course, you know, wow. girls are being kidnapped up there now. But when yeah. she got married in 1957, she lost her job, and she was deemed to have resigned by marrying. And this mm. this rule was known as the the marriage bar. And the British Foreign Service only lifted the marriage bar in 1973, and it's dark, straight shadow, you know, still lingers in, in the norms and mores of governments across the world. And I think that really convinced me that I, I had to kind of, you know, I was going to go into a profession and, and work internationally. I, I, for a while I went to Kaduna Secondary School in northern Nigeria. Uh, so it wasn't a surprise that I then decided to do, when I left university, do voluntary service overseas, (VSO). I didn't go to Nigeria, but as you mentioned, I went to Sierra Leone. So that was one of my first jobs in 1981. Um, it's,
0: it's it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, my first job was in Papua New Guinea and, and, and sort of getting on a plane and waving goodbye when there's no internet, there was no... Um, I, there was no phone I mean there was a fax machine and we used to write and it'd take a month to get a letter from people and a month for mine to get there and I don't know if I'd do it now or if any of my daughters or friends said to me oh I'm gonna go and do that I'd be a bit like oh are you sure
1: yeah no it was it was very funny actually when I was uh, uh, as I was getting on the plane to fly to Freetown my father who was kind of rather straight he was you know my mother was much more, if you like, slightly more radical than my father was. Uh, he also worked in Nigeria, right? But uh, he, he, he gave me his pedometer and said, walk the land to get to know the people. And then ended just as I was going through, you know, immigration or whatever, uh, said, and if a snake bites you on your toes, shoot your toe off, which, I, you know, was a very sort of kind of colonial type stereotype kind of thing to say so I left. Yeah, and, and I, I, I taught and worked in adult literacy in what was then a relatively remote and rural part of Mende land near the Liberian border and I lived in a rural community with a Mende family on the compound of one of the relatives of the local chief together with his various wives and there I learned how all his wives Worked together and they helped each other. And the best place to talk to women and where they discussed issues important to them was by the river in the late afternoon at laundry time. You know, washing where people they wash their clothes in the river. Uh, and so, and yeah, it's a culture. Where women were subservient to men, but in some places they were active decision makers, like in running the local market. And there was a female chief nearby holding political office but women chiefs were not very common amongst the Mende but i was the only woman on the compound who had not gone through the secret society bush rites so i was one of the few women who had not suffered female genital you know mutilation oh, or circumcision yes. and yeah, the yeah. practice of circumcision on daughters is still very prevalent in Sierra Leone today and more common among poor rural families where mothers have not had a chance to go to school. So for this and the reasons, you know, my mother's um, sort of history, I've always felt strongly that secondary as well as primary education for girls, particularly in rural areas, is very important.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's sort of starkly obvious when, when you look at cases like that. And does education have empower the women then to sort of, Signed up, I mean, it's, is it a sort of patriarchal society where it's about empowering them?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, certainly on female circum- circumcision, it is uh, much more prevalent in Africa, and in particular in Syria, not just in Syria, and across the Liberian border, mm. with, uh, uneducated, where uneducated women are mothers. And in particular, that's in rural areas where there are less educated women. We, we can come back to that because... For me, that's influenced me in all the over 35 years that I've worked in international development. I mean, mainly in Latin America, actually, not Africa, but also Asia, Bangladesh, and Indonesia. Um, Yeah.
0: No, I mean, in Papua New Guinea, I I sort of distinctly remember, you know, i I was I went to a village and I wouldn't go they wouldn't allow me for the first sort of few months until they would built a new toilet for me because they, you know that I was the first white woman to go to the village and the women lived in one house and the men in the other and then when I was working in Palestine it was the same we were working about how do we have a community discussion where men and women couldn't be in the same room together and you invent all sorts of ways to create those conversations and you know it's still going on it's still prevalent but you have to take those learnings and then when you're then reaching up and and becoming in that international policy arena which is where you you've sort of been recently and and at the Ford Foundation sort of in that space creating those policy dialogues i think it's it's difficult to sort of put put a sort of um an understanding on how how much that influences just the way you think, the way you might look at how you engage with people, being aware of voices and people across the room, have you sort of how did you go if we step back a bit from from then being in that village and being hands on being v s o to sort of where where you've recently been at the sort of international u n level
1: Yes, so I worked uh, in projects mainly you know started with working for the u k diffiD department of international development now part of the the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, also German GIZ, EU, and more recently private philanthropy with the Ford Foundation. Um, and my professional focus I started working in agroforestry research in the Bolivian Amazon, um, agricultural economics, rural livelihoods, tropical forests, and of course climate change. Uh, and so I ranged then, I, I was working at, if you like, grassroots level and moved in. working in national government. I was located in the Ministry of Forestry uh, in Jakarta, the Indonesian Ministry of Forestry, where all policy announcements happened on Friday in the mosque and no women could go down there. So we had to send, you know, male spies to go down and hear what the recent (laughs) policy announcement of the minister was. And, you know, so it was either the mosque or the golf course, right? And that was not where I was or any of my uh, women peers, Indonesian women peers, either. So, and then of course I worked in London and in New York, where I have put in some long sessions, days and nights, inside the United Nations as part of various uh, drawn-out government intergovernmental negotiations on forests and climate change. And women were and still are a minority in those policy spaces. Whether we're talking about food or forest or climate policy making, so whether at national or international level whether in the Global South or indeed in London. And that means that women's perspective is excluded from that policy-making and decision-making. But we should nuance women from where. So I'm thinking not just about women from towns, you know, like me or maybe you, but rural women from rural Africa. Many rural African women still have no recognised right to own the land they farm. Less than one third of low and middle income countries have laws guaranteeing women secure land rights. Other women living in even remoter places in tropical forests, indigenous women in the Amazon forest or backup pygmy women in the Congo Basin who collect tree nuts or collect resins or fuel wood. These rural women and forest women do not have a seat at the policy-making table, and that means they don't have a say in the decisions governments make which affect their access to their forest resources. In fact, and and to quote some lyrics from, I'm not going to sing, but from Lin-Manuel Miranda's musical Hamilton. I don't know if you know this song, but it's, you know, they want to be in the room where it happens, they want to know how the game is played, the art of the trade, how the sausage gets made. They, we women, want to be in the room where it happens. I uh, think
0: you've just <laughs> written our new jingle for the podcast. I <laughs> am
1: glad you like that one. Yeah, no, it's very cool. But, but, but it's of course it's not just rural women; it's rural men, and particularly younger men as well as younger rural women, and those from ethnic minorities um, from those places far from capital cities, who are often not present in
0: the room either and have you seen that change have you have you seen shifts for that whole process to to evolve and change or is it sort of still (laughs) still a work in progress shall we say
1: yeah so so if you like a kind of something which really got me a bit down so um, you know where I so it I mean, I, just, I thought it was extraordinary that the UN held an international food summit, or food systems summit last year uh, where peasants and farmer organizations from Africa, Asia and Latin America were hardly mentioned, let alone invited. So, you know, how can we talk about food systems without involving small scale rural based food producers in that conversation, many of whom are women across the world? Um, so for me, it, it isn't just you know female male bias in these spaces that worries me, but so does urban rural and minority bias. You know, so that's the downside. But yes, uh, I was very motivated uh, when I was in the global climate change conference in Paris in 2015. That famous moment, uh, which brings home to us, you know, what's happening now in UK and Europe. We're all in. Well, we're in drought here, and then floods elsewhere. But in Fires,
0: floods, and drought.
1: Yes, <laughs> it's
0: almost biblical, really, it, isn't it? It, it?
1: Yeah, pandemic, plagues, and then absolutely. But but in Paris, I met um, Mina Setra there. I knew Mina from when I worked in Indonesia. She's an indigenous Dayak from the forests of Borneo. And also there was Diana Rios. She's from a small Amazonian community in Peru. And from Diana's community, it takes several days by canoe to get to the nearest town, then another 10 hours by road to Lima, the capital, and an even longer flight then for to get to Paris. But actually, by being there physically, they were able to speak firsthand about how their communities and forests are being affected by illegal loggers, palm oil companies, and also about what they're doing. Pro- con- concretely and in practical terms what they're doing to protect their forests and lands. And <laughs> by doing so, trying to help protect our climate and reduce, uh, you know, these uh, very extreme weather events that we're suffering now. So uh, I, was, I was just so impressed, despite facing challenges of that, those long journeys and then tragedy. Some of Dinah's family had recently been killed by illegal loggers they both had such positive and practical mindsets, which policymakers or we all could learn from, you know. So so for me, that was a really moving and vital, vivid moment, which has given me hope, if you like.
0: Yeah, important hope. And it's, it's a sort of, it's, it's a difficult one to, to sort of, get across to the policy makers that, that Neil need to be there. And it's it's always a pressure of time. And then obviously big corporates, big business, big bucks, that sort of influences the process, influences the discussions. And like you say, I think it's invaluable when you do hear firsthand from people. We had very similar at the Amsterdam Declaration Partnership, Partnership meeting in June this year, where hearing from Indigenous tribe leader in from the Amazon and the day-to-day lives. That's there, and we all know about the loss of the journalists that happened recently. You know, it's it's ongoing, and we we tend to forget that this is actual. It's people's lives. I mean, quite literally, people's lives, as well as just survival and food and stuff. And giving people that voice and and a way to to voice. And how do you stand up against big corporates, big politicians, and like you say, a lot of which are still very male dominated in terms of down the club or down the golf course making decisions and you're never quite sure what what decision is being made until perhaps it's too late it's a foregone conclusion and perhaps a meeting can be a bit of a a sort of oh, of course we met we met with people and we've ticked it off the list yeah. do you-
1: it's it's interesting you know i was recently involved in um some work for the rights and resources initiative an ngo based in washington dc which works worldwide uh, and we were part, I was part of a team and we interviewed, amongst us all, 100 leaders from indigenous peoples and local community networks and community-based organizations. Some of them in capital cities, but a lot of them actually in their rural villages. It was a real effort, you know, WhatsApp and then internet connections breaking down and all this. But anyway, 100 people, rural, mainly rural, from across Africa, Asia and Latin America. And I was very encouraged how a growing number of strong, articulate, young rural women are now in leadership positions in their own community organizations in their villages. And some of them, you know, if you look at Nepal, for example, have been elected to local government. Um, One woman from a community not accessible by road has been elected to Congress, an indigenous woman in Brazil. And these women, you know, who are becoming professional lawyers, environmental lawyers, foresters, uh, one that's starting to make films, becoming a filmmaker, you know, they are starting to move into decision-making spaces. But, of course, access to quality education or informal learning opportunities in remote rural areas is still a barrier for many. And I I would really urge donors and funders to support strengthening of community-based organizations and women's participation in those spaces because I think working with women in forest communities where they live is a governance issue. It's about building bottom-up democracy democracy with women at the heart, rural women, indigenous women, women from remote forests, and that takes time and patience because it means, you know, getting out of the office, hanging out on the riverbank, it means working from the roots up, the ground up, to support greater parity for rural women in farmer organisations, in local indigenous and community forest organisations, but that then creates the foundation for inclusive political systems more widely as they move into the formal decision-making places, right? Uh, As well as, of course, reducing economic uh, inequality. Uh, So so for me, I think, uh, you know, there isn't so much of a distinction between working at grassroots or working, you know, at the grass tops, uh, but what is important is that it isn't just like having a whole lot of civil society or NGOs on the outside of policymaking spaces, you know, go to Thunberg. I mean, obviously that kind of pressure is important, uh, but it is uh, rural women or women from rural backgrounds and forest backgrounds being able to get in as formal, formals into the formal spaces. Uh, so they are actually part of the decision making process and their voices are not just you know on the outside so i mean there's
0: huge pressure and, and we're coming to, to the end now and I, we could sit in natter for ages but there's huge pressure for for urgency um as we just said you know i mean what's going on around us i mean climate change is not something you can ignore anymore um looking after the world's resources and farming and humanity is, is so fundamental that i don't think you know that there, there is a pressure for speed and urgency and create change global change how do we get this going at space and there there's a pressure for that versus if we don't include women and communities and rural people who's who are the stewards of the land with which we are so dependent on that's more time consuming how do you sort of Juggle or justify or, or convince the powers that be whoever that be that, that it is so important to do that, otherwise you 've sort of got these parallel universes working at different speeds, different political processes, and but you can't do one without the other. I mean without bringing the local communities along on this journey, we won 't have any resources left
1: yeah I mean I think you know the, the, there's still a few of us around who try. Uh, uh, well, I'm I'm now sort of I'm writing a book and working you know part time, but I spent quite a lot of time trying to make sure that if I was in a policy space and there were were people on the outside that uh, they could come into the room with me even if they weren't on the podium, right? Although at Glasgow there were some rural and indigenous uh, uh, people and leaders and women who spoke in the formal podium, you know, and hats off to. To UK government etc. Who, who tried to make that happen? and Those uh, on the inside um, who, who did that, right? So, so I don't. So I don't think it's easy. But I think once you get voices on the inside, then you know policymakers realise uh, the importance of listening to a slightly different perspective. I think there are huge barriers at grassroots level. I would say a lot of community organizations in Africa, in Latin America, are very male dominated. You know, it's not just at policy level, it's not just, you know, big companies. There are um, cultural behaviors (laughs) which we're all familiar with, uh, and one has to very sensitively uh, try and encourage uh, projects and organizations to create space, internships for women, women from producer organizations to become leaders in that organization, and then perhaps they become decision makers in the sort of mixed gender organizations. So safe spaces for women, which give them the courage then to move into decision making. So I'm not against um, women-only organizations, but I do strongly believe that women have to get into mixed gender spaces. Uh, um, and you have to get rural women, not just uh, urban women, to speak for rural women, you know, in in, in their countries. So, uh, etc. And uh, because you know, we I have more in common with you know a, a woman sitting in in Monrovia or Kampala or or Brasilia uh, than I do, uh, and they do with maybe a rural woman sort of on the outskirts of Belém, or the the Amazon. Yeah. So, so that's very important. Um, but I'm very optimistic. I mean, it was difficult for me to get into, I was one of the few people when I started working with ODA, the Overseas Development Administration, then became DFID. Um, <laughs> I, I remember I was sent uh, by the British Embassy my visa when I first started working with DFID or ODA in Bolivia on this agroforestry research uh, project in the Amazon, in the Bolivian Amazon. And when I opened the visa, my passport and looked at the visa, it said spouse's visa. So I sent my passport <laughs> back to La Paz, to, to the British embassy in La Paz. And all my you know male British colleagues and Bolivian colleagues, male Bolivian colleagues, were like, why are you so worried? You got the visa. And I was like, no. I am unmarried and I am, you know, a full-time professional. I want the same visa as you have got, you know. <laughs> and that was it. was that? That was 1983. So, I mean, not that
0: long ago. <laughs> not that and I and, and I suspect things haven't all changed that much in certain places either. So, Penny, it's been an absolute pleasure. I was going to ask if you've got advice for, you know, sort of women coming up and how to get started and, and stuff I mean any final thoughts of uh, inspiration for, for yeah. future generations
1: yeah I mean I, I think it's difficult to to go out and, and do voluntary work and get practical experience my job in Sierra Leone I was paid 20, 20 pounds or 20 dollars a month or something <laughs> you know i have really, you know it was not hardly enough to buy the food let alone the beer and, uh, whatever, uh, so it's quite difficult to get that kind of experience. I really would encourage people to to focus on a profession as a woman, uh, and also try and get if you're wanting to work in international development to get some practical on the ground experience before trying to move up into project management or policy making and programming. Because you know, without that depth, uh, it's difficult for you to really have quality breadth. Uh, when you get up to the sort of higher level, and and it's much, yeah, it's much more important what's happening on the ground. Sometimes,
0: I I, th- I think we we've had a privilege uh, not only talking to you today, but just in in be, both of us being able to live firsthand in some places where I don't think you can go and do that now, like you say, and it and yeah, it's something I definitely treasure. I hope I have an opportunity to, to share with others. And uh, and it's been an absolute pleasure learning some of you and hearing some of your stories today. And um, thank you so very much. A huge thank you to Penny and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and we hope you can join us soon for another episode. Episodes come out on the 8th of every month.